Uh, I want to start with a, uh, turn to John 11, if you're not there already, by the way. I want to start with a pithy statement. It's from a devotional writer named Anne Lamott. And I read something from her a while back that just frequently re-enters my mind. And she wrote this. She wrote, A hundred years from now, all new people. A hundred years from now, all new people. So think about this. If the Lord tarries in the next hundred years, approximately seven billion people will die. Now, we only tend to care about the ones that are close to us, or maybe we only tend to care about our own mortality. But death is literally a part of life. Uh, The two most significant events in one's existence, your birth and your death, are not unique at all. They seem unique, they seem like a big deal to you, but they're not unique in the scheme of our world stage at all. Sometimes, as a pastor, you get called upon to do funerals of people that you don't know. And to make things more challenging in those situations, you don't often know that deceased person's spiritual condition. I remember one occasion where I was called on to preach a funeral of a person I didn't know, and and I met with the family, and after meeting with the family, it was pretty clear that that this mother, in this case, uh, she was not a believer. And so I went to the funeral, and... And there were some eulogies uh, planned, and I sat there, as I sat there and I listened to the different family members, they tried to make the funeral very light and funny, all kinds of jokes and sentimentalities were shared, and things like, you know, she's, she's in heaven gardening, you know, and, and she'll be uh, having the, the, the loveliest garden in, in all of heaven. Or someone said, she loved to bake cookies, and right now she's cooking cookies in, in heaven for the, for the angels, and they're probably enjoying those cookies. They're the best cookies that they've ever had there in heaven, and, and my stomach's just turning, and it's not because I'm hungry for cookies. It's just because, oh, this, I can't believe I'm hearing some of these things, and, and I understand that if you don't have an answer for death, you'll say really anything to kind of comfort one another. Death is this horrible, horrible enemy, and at that particular funeral, I rose to, to give the message, just this exhortation from the Bible And I I told this small gathering about the promise of Christ and how he provides this eternal refuge from death. And and I remember there was this this one woman who I could tell was visibly upset with me through the whole sermon. She kind of had this scowl on her face, this angry look on her face the whole time. She she shook her head every time I said the name Jesus and Jesus. And she would lean over to the people in front of her and beside her, and she'd make comments. And, and I realized that what was happening in that moment is, is I was disrupting this whole charade that was going on about, just by speaking the truth. She, she didn't want to hear uh, these eternal matters. She just wanted to hear about gardening and, and, and baking cookies. And, and really, her consternation was kind of illustrating my whole point, is that Death is this enemy, and at the same time, we don't do anybody any favors by ignoring it. It comes literally for all of us, and frankly, that's why I love the Bible. That's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It does not deny the reality of death. It actually helps to explain death, but it doesn't deny it. Our our Savior, he runs headlong into into it. Jesus came, you might say, really to deal with death. 
And so tonight, I want to walk us through John 11, and I want to focus on this fifth I am statement in John's gospel, this fifth explicit claim to, to, to divinity that's made by our Savior. And the claim is this one, I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. So John chapter 11, let's read these first 27 verses. Um, I know it's a long section, but I think it's worth reading together, <clears throat> and then we'll uh, get into uh, the meat of it. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, John wrote these words. Again, this is John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose, brother's, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's only fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is God's word. So as with all of these I am statements, there is a broad sort of context. So let's look first at the setting. This, this is now the third time Jesus has spoken an I am statement in the presence of a miracle. We haven't yet gotten to the miracle in our reading. We'll get there eventually, but a miracle is really what overshadows this I am statement. And he's, this is the third time he's attached one of these claims to a miracle. He was the bread of life after he fed the 5,000. He was the light of the world after he healed the man born blind. And then the next two statements in chapter 10, they serve as a commentary to the healing of the blind man. The, the primary point being that Jesus, the good shepherd, was calling true believers out of unbelie unbelieving Judaism and into his flock. 
He was the door to salvation. So the door to salvation is not Pharisaical Judaism. It's not the law, but it's the, it's the grace of his person. That's the way into salvation. Again, the calling and the, and the healing of the blind man was the perfect picture of those next two statements, those next two truths. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And now here, he is the resurrection and the life. And he says this as he, as he poises to raise Lazarus from the dead. And this raising of Lazarus from the dead, this is the longest miracle narrative that we have in the Gospels. And as you look at all of these I am statements together so far, the implications of them are really massive. The implications are that if you believe in Jesus, you won't hunger. That if you believe in Jesus, you won't be in the dark. That if you believe in Jesus, you won't be left alone. And now, if you believe in Jesus, you will not die. Those are stunning claims, aren't they? These are tremendous promises. And and the way Jesus is stating these promises, they are all wrapped up in his person. Ego a me, that tetragrammaton. I am, he says. I am bread. I am light. I am the good shepherd. I am life. And so let's take a little bit, let's look at what's going on contextually here, because I think it'll be helpful for us to understand the way this would have impacted the world around him, these state, this, this particular statement that he's about to make and the miracle that's going along with it. You may know a little bit about the parties in Judaism in the first century. Uh, and they flow out of the intertestamental period. So the, that 400 years of silence um, that uh, was in between the Old and New Testaments. And you had two major movements within Judaism. You had Hasidism, or Hasidim, uh, which is kind of orthodox, very legalistic Judaism. And from there you have groups like the Pharisees and the Essenes. The Essenes would have been a, a uh, kind of an inclusive group living out in the wilderness Um, but very strict in their law-keeping and in their lifestyle. And then you have the Hasmoneans that grew up during this intertestamental period, and these are associated with the the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Herodians, and these are more culturally compromised, you might say, uh, than the the other two groups that I just mentioned. Um, Again, you have this um, cultural, religious faction, these two factions, and, and they're responding to, to Hellenism or what's often referred to just as Greek enculturation. As, as the culture of the Greeks spread, uh, you had Pharisees on one side, very strict in their approach to the law and to law keeping. Um, and then you had Sadducees on the other side. Sadducees were more of the liberals of the day. Uh, so you had the very conservative group in the Pharisees. They wanted to separate from the cultural influences of the Greeks. And then you have the Sadducees who wanted to accommodate uh, the influence of the Greek culture um, as it related to uh, religion. The Sadducees didn't believe in things like the resurrection. Uh, they had trouble with some of the literal interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures Again, they were the theological liberals, the Pharisees were the theological conservatives. On the political side of the spectrum, you also had some different factions. You, um, and these factions kind of broke down in people's response to Rome. 
and, and Rome's occupation of, uh, of Israel. You had the zealots, and the zealots, they wanted to revolt. Uh, they were the, uh, <clears throat> they wanted to take back their country by force, you might say. But then you had the Herodians, and the Herodians, they accommodated Roman rule, and uh, they wanted to rule as sort of puppet leaders um, alongside of Rome. But really, these Pharisees and these Sadducees um, being sort of the primary religious groups, those are the ones that, that rear their heads uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly as we get closer to the end of his life. And it's often said that the Gospel of John is a story of Jesus last week with an exceedingly long introduction. So by the time you get to John 12, you're at the last week of Jesus. So as we're here in John 11, we're on the doorstep of that. But this kind of breaks down these groups a little bit for you as well. When you think about the Pharisees, you're talking about laymen. You're talking about guys who are uh, in villages, in synagogues, and um, kind of doing the, the spiritual leadership on the ground there. Uh, and in between these two groups, you had scribes or teachers of the law. These are men that knew the law backwards and forwards. They, um, again, as their name implies, they were scribes. They wrote copies of uh, the Torah uh, and even all of the Old Testament books uh, for the <clears throat> benefit of study. And some of the teachers of the law were Pharisees. Some of the teachers of the law were Sadducees, but not necessarily all of them. Some teachers of the law were neither Pharisees nor Sadducees. Uh, most Pharisees were not teachers of the law. Most Pharisees were laymen. Most Sadducees were priests. So you kind of see this little Venn, this crude Venn diagram that I've drawn for you here to see how uh, these, these positions of leadership and power kind of broke down in uh, the first century. And at the end of chapter 10, after Jesus makes this claim about being the good shepherd, and he's making this claim as a way of saying, I'm the good shepherd, the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of, of, of Israel are false shepherds, he gets run out of town. He gets run out of town. He, he makes that claim in the temple, uh, but he has to leave at the end of chapter 10. And when he leaves, uh, this is a map that's orienting uh, to the, to the, uh, to the east. So east is where north would be. The Jordan River runs right through the middle of it with the Sea of Galilee at the, at the left and the Dead Sea at the right. He would have left Jerusalem and gone to the region of Perea. Now Perea, this is where John the Baptist was doing most of his baptisms uh, so many years before. Uh, this is where he had headquartered and uh, had a ministry of, of renown and of, of, of notoriety there. And so that's where Jesus kind of escapes to. Um, and we see that at the end of chapter 10. He's left Jerusalem, uh, he's under fire, and so he goes away to this region uh, in Perea. Um, my font's not very easy to read. But at the start of, of John chapter 11, uh, we learn that back in Bethany, this sort of suburb of Jerusalem, uh, there's this man, Lazarus, who is sick. Uh, and when <clears throat> Jesus hears of it, he makes a decision uh, to return, uh, not all the way to Jerusalem, but to Bethany, up the, what's called the Wadi Kilt um, between Jericho and Jerusalem, makes his way up this you know, 2,500, 3,000 foot ascent from the Dead Sea area um, to, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And as he makes his way there, um, he meets Martha. Again, we're less than, at this point, we're less than two miles from the Temple Mount. Uh, the Temple Mount would be the place where the Sanhedrin 
uh, would be headquartered. Uh, so this, this august body that we might refer to as the Supreme Court of Israel, primarily made up of Sadducees, that's where they are. Uh, Bethany, less than two miles away on the other side of the Mount of Olives to the east of the city. Kind of an overview of what things would have looked like. The Bethany area there toward the bottom of the screen, Temple Mount in the middle. And so it's here as Jesus arrives that he makes this, this claim, I am the resurrection and the life. And these I am statements, the reason why I share some of this material is that there, there's this political intrigue to these statements. You know, he provided bread and the crowd, what did they want to do? They wanted to make him king, right? They, they wanted to put him in a position of power. He, he gave sight and to, to the blind man and the Pharisees, they went ballistic because he essentially pulled this man out of religious life, out of Judaism, out of the synagogue. He condemned the false shepherds by saying he is the true and good shepherd, and, and thus they were ready to kill him. And so that's why Thomas, in our text that we just read, Thomas says, all right, well, if we go back, I guess we're going to die with him. You know, we often call Thomas doubting Thomas because we think maybe he, he lacked faith or loyalty. But right here in John chapter 11, he shows a great deal of loyalty. He resigns himself to say, okay, Jesus, we'll go back and we'll die together. And so now he comes back and he's in the shadow of the temple He's within earshot of the Sanhedrin, and he's within earshot of the, of the resurrection-denying Sadducees, and has this scene where he encounters a dead man and performs a miracle to reverse his condition. So it's kind of like in Braveheart, as Jesus comes back to Bethany here. I don't know if you remember the movie Braveheart, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, version of, of the story of, of William Wallace. There's a scene where Gibson, who plays Wallace, he, he shows up on the battlefield and he has this really short little line. He says, I came to pick a fight. <laughs> and he says it in a very deep, you know, Scottish uh, brogue, brogue I, I came to pick a fight. And in some sense, Jesus has come back uh, to pick a fight. But the real intrigue here for me, and what I think serves as one of the keys to this whole passage, is the word love. Just in contrast to what he's going to accomplish through doing this miracle, the, the real uh, intrigue is, is this idea of love. We see in verse 3, what do we see in verse 3? It says, the Lord, whom, Lord, he whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. Jesus loves this man. So Jesus does a lot of miracles through the course of his ministry, but a lot of times they're with, with and to and for people he has no relationship with. Here there's deep relationship with this family in Bethany. And then in verse 5, again, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha. And then if you actually jump down into one of the, past, or one of the parts that we didn't read, verse 36, the, the declaration there is, oh, See how he loved him. There's this idea throughout the whole passage that, that Jesus loves this family. He loves them. And what's very informative is the detail found in verses 5 and 6. These verses tell us that the reason Jesus did not go to heal Lazarus when he heard he was sick was because he loved him and his sisters. Think about that. 
He would stay where he was, and he would let Lazarus die because he loved them. Verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, you might just say, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How does that add up? And the explanation that Jesus gave for how letting Lazarus die was loving came in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death, though he will die. That's not the goal or the point. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, it was more loving to put Lazarus through death and to put his sisters through grief that it would reveal more of God's glory to them and more of the glory of Christ. Point being, Jesus loves us by showing us himself, by glorifying himself in our lives, in our midst. So he does not mainly love us in this life by sparing us suffering and death. He mainly loves us by showing us and giving us himself and revealing to us his glory. So God loves us mainly by giving us himself and all that he is for us in Jesus. Jesus loves us mainly by showing who he is to us. So don't measure the love of God for you by how much health you have, how much wealth you have, how much comfort he brings into your life. You know, if that were the measure of God's love, then, then he hated men like the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows to you, how, how much of himself he gives to you to, to know and to, and to enjoy the way in which he reveals himself to you through his word. And there's another confirmation that I'm on the right track with this. We, we see it in John chapter 14. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and here, here goes, and manifest myself to him, which is a wonderful statement. I will love you and manifest myself to you. That's how I will love you, is what's being claimed there, by showing myself to you, by revealing myself to you. So in the days of suffering and loss, in, in your darkest time, Jesus loves you, not by taking away the suffering or the loss of the darkness, but by giving you more of himself, by giving you himself in ways that could not have been yours without that suffering, without that darkness. And so here's the deal. If you demand that God love you the way the world expects to be loved in this life, you won't know what it is to really be loved by God. The love of God is the gift of himself, of his glorious self. And we get more of him when we need more of him, which happens to usually coincide with suffering and trials. Consider our text from this last Sunday. If you were here on Sunday morning, you heard, you heard Mark preach 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. And that text says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gist of that is, is suffering results in faith, which shows you more of Jesus, which brings him greater glory. That exact same thing is what's going on here in John chapter 11. Because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he stayed two days longer. He let them walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then he went, and when he went, he would show them his glory. He would reveal more of himself to them than, he'd, than they'd ever seen. So that's kind of a broad look at the setting. Let's get to the saying. And getting to the saying, you have to deal with a confrontation. And what this confrontation presents is a thinly veiled questioning of Jesus' love. So we've established that Jesus loves this family, and he wants to show himself, he wants to show more of himself to them as a way of showing them how much he loves them. But what you have at the very start of the confrontation with Martha is this suspicion, this tone of doubt in relation to his love. Verses 20 and 21, when, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Isn't it interesting? Almost every question we have of God has to do with his timing. Isn't that interesting? In our lives, when we're wondering if God is there, when we're wondering if God loves us, almost every question we, we have of him has to do with his timing. Why now? When, Lord? Why? When? We, we always question his timing, and we always associate it with whether or not he cares for us, whether or not he loves us. And that's actually not the only time in the passage that we see this questioning of Jesus' love. In the verses I've yet to read, look at verse 32. This is Mary in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. This is what Mary does. She's done this more than once. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost like her and Martha are sisters. <laughs> if you know how sisters operate. But then we see it again in verses 36 and 37. And there you have these mourners. Now, often in the first century, mourners, many of them would be hired. So you would pay them to come and to sort of uh, exhibit grief for the deceased. Up to even 30 days, you would have this time of mourning in a household. And, and often these hired mourners would show up and, and grieve and draw attention to the fact that your home was a, a place of grief or, or suffering or death. Anyway, the mourners chime in. Jesus had been weeping, and so it says, The Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Again, this questioning, this doubt, this tone of suspicion. Jesus had chosen to love Lazarus and his sisters by not coming immediately, and now his not coming is being used to question his love. You know, if you had come right away, Jesus, no one would be crying. There would be no mourning. And so concentrating on his exchange with Martha, let, let's look how he responds here. Jesus answers in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again, very matter of fact. 
And so Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he poses this question, do you believe this? Here Jesus reveals his glory with his words and with his, with his truth. He says, you believe that there is a great and glorious day of resurrection coming at the end of the age. You believe that when all believers, they will be raised bodily from the grave. And you're, you're right, Martha. And here's the mystery that I'm revealing to you. Here's why I waited and here's why I'm showing up now. I'm the arrival of that day. You thought that day would come with the Messiah. I am the Messiah. That day has come. See, Martha is a really good theologian. As we read about her and her interactions with Jesus, she has a high Christology, which is to say she has a right understanding of, of who Jesus is. She has a right eschatology in terms of, of, of what she believes about the resurrection. And, and further, Jesus is saying to her, let me be specific, Martha. I'm exactly what Lazarus needs. And I'm exactly what you need. Now, he's dead and you're alive. So listen, Martha. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he'll live. That's for Lazarus. And then Martha, whoever, whoever or everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, that's for you. And so the truth being communicated here by Jesus equates to this. When we die now in this life, our body goes in the ground, our soul goes to heaven. It is conscious, fully sanctified. It's in the presence of God. This is the intermediate state, as we've referred to it where we're awaiting the final state, where, where our body will be resurrected and united to our soul and will be transformed like Christ's glorious body and ultimately will inhabit the new earth. And so this is what Martha's thinking of there in verse 24. But Jesus isn't talking about the final resurrection. He's saying that he himself now in this moment is the resurrection and the life. So this life that they're talking about, again, it's this word zoe, that Greek word for life is Zoe in this passage. It's not found in a principle or in a prophetic event, but this life is found in a person. That's the flashing neon sign that Jesus is trying to reveal to her. What Jesus was saying when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, is that the, the whole power to restore, to impart, to maintain life, Martha, it resides in me. And that, in sum, is really what the Gospel of John is about. It does talk about the future. It does talk about the resurrection. It does talk about what happens when Jesus comes again and, and believers receive new bodies. But it also talks about having life now. Think about John 1, verse 4, in the prologue to the Gospel. In the introduction, it says, In him, in Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. That was my son's Bible verse at school last week, actually. In Jesus was life, and life was the light of men. He's the life. Turn with me to John 5. Just go back a few pages. John 5, uh, verse 24. This is a passage on resurrection, on bodily resurrection, but it's also more than that. These two verses, 24 and 25 of, of John 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So present personal possession there has, has everlasting life. 
So not just out in the future, not just will have, but has it. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. When does that happen? At the moment of faith, when you believe in him. Now that's spiritual resurrection. We, we might call that uh, regeneration, which is a big word that just means born again. We're, we're, we're given life. We're born again by having faith in Jesus, by repenting of our sins and, and clinging to Christ by faith. But here's the physical re- resurrection in that, ch- in that chapter, in verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there's this seeming paradox. The day is coming, but it now is when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God. There's, so there's not only physical resurrection to look forward to, which, praise God for that, now that's the ultimate consummation of all God's plans. He wants us, body, soul, and spirit together in the image of Christ. But there's life now as well for those who believe in him. That, that very resurrection life that Jesus brought, he's holding out to us now. And so he's telling Martha, I will rescue Lazarus, body and soul, from the grave. When I do it doesn't necessarily matter. And you, you live and believe in me, and so you'll never die. There will never be a single millisecond when you are out of saving fellowship with me. That's what he's saying to Martha. And what this means, Martha, this means I love you. You don't think I love you because I waited, but I I love you. And I love your brother, and I will not abandon him. I will not abandon his soul to, to, to be destroyed. I will raise him, and I will keep you in fellowship, everlasting fellowship with me. I'm telling you this. I'm revealing my power and my glory to you, Martha, because I love you. I will bring, essentially, your hope of the future, Martha. You're, you have the resurrection way out there. I'm going to bring your hope of the future into the present. You've put it out in front of you. I'm going to bring it near. I'm giving you life today. I'm giving life today to all who believe. And so this is what drives his question there in verse 27. Do you believe this? Bruce Larson, in a book called Living Beyond Our Fears, he tells a great story about a judge in Yugoslavia who had a really unfortunate accident. He was electrocuted when he reached up to turn on the light while standing in his bathtub. And his wife found his body sprawled on the bathroom floor. He was pronounced dead, and as was the custom in that particular town, he was placed in a room under a crypt in the town cemetery for 24 hours before his burial. Well, in the middle of the night, the judge, he came to. He realized where he was, and he rushed out of there to alert a guard who promptly ran off terrified. Fortunately, the guard returned with a friend, and and they released this, this revived judge whose first thought was to phone his wife and reassure her. So he got, he got no farther than saying, darling, it's me, when she screamed and fainted. Next, he went to the houses of several friends who were sure that he was a ghost. In a last desperate measure, he called a friend in a distant city who had not heard of his death and who interceded for him with his family and friends. Man, what a change in this guy's life, from death to life. And I just shared that illustration because, one, it's funny and fascinating, but it also illustrates that that the life Jesus brings to us will change us. 
and it's going to change us forever. But that change actually happens in the presence, when, in the present. When we see Jesus for who he is, when we, when we see his love for us, when we have the Spirit awaken us to these spiritual realities, that changes us. It moves us from a state of death, spiritual death, to a state of life. And there's no self-help guru There's no life hack. There's no ideological commitment that can move anyone from death to life. Only Jesus can do that. Only life with Jesus is real life. There's an essayist, an author named David Foster Wallace. He's actually deceased. He killed himself. But one of my favorite speeches I've ever heard is his commencement address to the Kenyon College class of 2005. It's often called the This is Water speech. I probably listen to it once every oh, six months or so. And he says several profound and perceptive things in the speech, but I've always appreciated this section. Listen to this. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, I realize that Wallace is not sharing the gospel. He died an agnostic. He killed himself in despair. But that fact the way he ended his life, actually proves his own words. Trusting or hoping or longing for anything but Jesus doesn't lead to life. It eats you alive because he's the resurrection and the life. So let's talk about the significance of all of this. Albert Camus, philosopher, he said that neither in the hearts of men nor in the manners of society Will there be a lasting peace until we outlaw death? But we can't outlaw it, obviously. The playwright Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. (laughs) Someone else said, death is the king of terrors and the terror of kings. The Apostle Paul called it man's last enemy. And here's the upshot of all of that. If Christ can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. Let me repeat that. If Christ can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. Which is exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if our hope in Christ is only for this little narrow window of our existence, then we of all men are to be the most pitied. We are the most miserable. But the great good news of the gospel message is not only that Jesus died for our sins, not only was he, he buried, but what did he do? He defeated death. He rose again. He's done something about death. He's defeated this, this enemy totally, and he's defeated it permanently, and this is what is encapsulated in the statement, this I am claim that he is the resurrection and the life. Let's read... Oh, these last few verses, verses 38 through 44, and then I'll, I'll wrap us up. It 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you... I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 39 says, Jesus says, take away the stone. And one last time, Martha kind of resists. Evidently, she's not completely confident he can do what he's about to do because she says Lord by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days the King James Version says he stinketh and I have a bunch of material here about what happens to the body over a 72 hour period but I'm not going to share it because it's disgusting and we don't have a lot of time so I'm going to move along from it But I will say this, by the 72nd hour, the tissue releases hydrogen sulfide and methane, as well as other gases. A horrible smell is emitted. Insects and animals consume parts of the body if they can get to it. That's Lazarus. That's where he's at. That's the condition he's in when Jesus is telling them to roll away the stone. But now, here, as I just read, Jesus is making the connection between what he's doing and what he said back in verse 4. Remember what he said in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So he says to Martha in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? That is, I am the resurrection. That's part of my glory. That's wrapped up in who I am. So he prays in verse 41 and 42 so that all can see that he's one with the Father. And in verse 43, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. One preacher said, the whole crowd should be glad Jesus called him by name or every dead person in that tomb would have risen with him. Imagine that. But he calls him by name. Lazarus, come out. In verse 44, the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. And there's one little tangential detail that that I always like to point out when talking about this story. It's the way that Jesus got everyone involved. Verse 39, take away the stone. Now, Jesus did stones. Like, Jesus could move stones, right? We know that when we get to the end of the book. But he wanted them to move the stone. Verse 44, unbind him and let him go. Surely Jesus could have done a miracle and seen the man unbound. But he wanted them to be involved in the unbinding. And here here lies a a lesson for the church. The people that Jesus raises to to new life, they need our help. They, they need the church to run to them and to draw near to them. You know, Lazarus would have been naked as he sort of bounced out of the tomb. It's just kind of a hilarious picture to think about. And so the people that Jesus raises to new life, they, they need the church to surround them and, and just shield them from, from shame. Not be afraid of their uncleanliness. Ooh, they're sinners. But what do we often say, either directly or indirectly, to maybe those who... God is saved, that we say to them, clean yourself up, and then you can join one of our Bible studies. 
interesting that he gets others involved in this miraculous healing. I had an illustration by Barnhouse, but I think Mark shared it before, so I'm going to skip over it. I'm just going to finish with a quote. It's from D.L. Moody. And it occurred when the great evangelist lay dying, and as he lay dying, he exclaimed these words, Earth is receding. Heaven is approaching. This is my crowning day. Earth is receding. Heaven is approaching. This is my crowning day. You can only say that if, if, if Jesus is your life. You can only say that if you know that though you die, you will live. There's just such power in this story, is there not? Uh, I just challenge you to, to read it and reread it uh, as you think about just the profound truths that are present here. That the Bible doesn't try to skip around death or offer us platitudes um, or soften it, um, but it deals with it, and it deals with it triumphantly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. Not only the words of Jesus, but the actions of Jesus. The power of Jesus. The one who overcame death. The resurrection. The life. Lord, I pray that we would, um, even though your timing seems oh, nonsensical to us, even though we feel at times you've maybe forgotten us or aren't caring for us the way that we want to be cared for, we would look for how you're revealing more of yourself to us. We would seek your glory, and in seeking your glory, we'd see how much you love us. Thank you for the story that illustrates that profound truth. Um, be with us as we leave here tonight. Keep us safe as we drive home in the weather. And um, Lord, uh, encourage us as we uh, look forward to Sunday, gathering again, worshiping, looking at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.